Welcome to the latest episode of the Brushwaters Union podcast. I'm your host and general president of the Brushwaters Union, Simon Berman. This month, I am joined by the creative crew behind the upcoming miniatures game, Zeogenesis. Uh, that includes Danny Block, who is the uh, owner of the company, and then two gentlemen whose pedigrees in miniatures gaming need little introduction, and that is the one and only Andy Chambers joining us again uh, since last year on Brushwaters Union podcast, and the one and only Gav Thorpe. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to meet you, to talk with me. I'm really excited to hear about Zeogenesis and uh, how you're all doing. Yeah, we're good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. so my, my pleasure. Uh, Gav, I'm actually uh, reading one of your novels right now. Oh, uh, which one? <laughs> uh, um, Angels of Caliban. I'm working my way through the Horus Heresy night. Oh, right, I okay. that last night. Okay, cool. Oh, well, I'll have fun with that. That's uh, yeah. a bit of a roller coaster ride, that one. Yeah, I'm three chapters in and having a great time with it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Gav is a prolific novelist. He's written, written many novels for Games Workshop over the years, um, game design as well. Uh, Andy, of course, is a prolific uh, game designer. And uh, Danny, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about you before we get into everybody else's pedigrees. Uh, what brings you to miniatures gaming? Uh, so I've I've always been around games, um, comic and game nerd, and I've spent. Almost all my adult life working in tabletop and computer games. Uh, so back in the day, White Wolf with role playing, some card games with Legend of Five Rings and the Dune card game, among others, uh, and just a bunch of projects here and there. And then in the late 2000s, I went back into computer gaming and worked uh, on small to big titles like uh, EVE Online and then League of Legends and then Paragon and Fortnite. And kind of just getting a chance to make games is really cool. And this is something I put off doing, making like making a miniature game myself for about 20 years now. Um, always bent right on the cusp of doing it and finally just put everything aside and said, nope, I'm going to go do that. <clears throat> Very cool. So uh, Andy and Gab, how did you guys come into this and meet Danny? Um, oh, I can take that, take that story. Uh, my friend Ryan Miller was doing some work for Danny and he got a slot working full-time for Ravensburger uh, and R Ryan's a big old uh, card game nerd primarily and board game as well though he also enjoys designing miniatures games which had helped him out a few times in the past and so he put me together with Danny sort of saying look you know this is a project I can't carry on with it because I've got a full-time job uh, but it's, you know, it's sci-fi skirmish game. You, you know this kind of thing. Um, can you take it over for me? So he introduced me to Danny, and I sort of, like, looked at what they got and picked it up from there overall. Mm -hmm. And realizing we probably needed a, a background guy as well, um, I got Gavin to work on that side of things. Eh, not too long after I started out on the rules as well. <laughs> we worked together before on a, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I'd like to just clarify that little section a little bit. because mm. um, So basically, Andy and I have been working on the 2008 license games for Warlord. Uh -huh. uh, and we've and we've had a, a good team combo going of uh, Andy sort of leading on the rules, me leading on the background and scenarios and things. Um, so, and we were coming to the end of, I can't remember which one it was now, Slain, was it? It was Slain, um, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or so was that ABC was Warriors? At, no, no, it was Slain. It was Slain, Slain. yeah. That's Over a great box thing. set, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and uh, so, and, and initially, Andy actually said that uh, he'd reached the stage that he needed somebody else to be like 
rolling the dice on the other side and testing the rules and things, which is, you know, part, was part of my job on the 2000 AD games as well, um, which I was happy to do. Um, and that quickly escalated to um, Danny asking me to, to, in a similar position, um, to take over from a previous writer, Jim, who'd been working up the background and narrative for him. But uh, unfortunately, due to ill health, I've been unable to continue. So Danny asked me to step into that role. Um, sure. So that suddenly escalated from sort of like playtester to, um, yeah, into narrative design and, and that kind of thing. It's been great fun, though. So I don't and, regret and it. They, they, both under, they both underplay my, my actual shock when, when Ryan said, hey, we should talk to Andy. I'm like, Andy? Andy who? <laughs> Andy Chambers. I'm like, yeah. Andy's, Andy's not going to on this he's got other stuff he's doing it's he he's he's got work he, he's not gonna take some random science fiction game from somebody that you know he's like no talk to andy yeah gav andy then said hey you should get gav um to, to pick up uh everything and i'm like gav's got too much going on. There's literally no way. The Horus Heresy to write and all that. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's funny. The first few times we talked, it just we're like, all right, yeah, we could we could work together. This could work. Let, let's let's give it a shot. And uh, no one has been more pleasantly surprised than me that, that both Andy and Gav said, yeah. No, that's very cool. It's, it's a hell of a team you guys have together on this. Um, but let's hear a little bit about the game. So it's it's Zeogenesis. I saw at first at Adepticon this past year. Um, your through line for it is scalable skirmish, kinetic action, big armor suits. Uh, what is Zeogenesis? Tell me more about that. So I can I can yeah, go, yeah. jump in. Go, go, go and get the top level, Danny. Go on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before we get obsessed with details. So uh, it's funny. When we talk about it, we, we've all made games separately and now we're making them together um, we've all made games for basically our adult working career as both passion and a vocation and we all kind of had to get to the point where we could talk about what we were making the same way over and over and over again so just so that we can check ourselves and say hey are we actually making the thing we set out to make it's it's, it's kind of important right sure so when we talk about scalable skirmish it's super easy to classify a game to say, Hey, this is a, for a computer game, this is an RTS game, or this is a shooter, or this is a whatever with miniature games. It's there's a little bit of a language there. And, and we always kind of argue around what we're making, but we are making ultimately a, a skirmish, a smaller scale game. And, but it's not a, um, Hey, I'm going to play one, the, the four figure kind of skirmish game. And I'm deeply uh -huh. invested in one figure, you know? Yeah. We, we, we call it scalable because of you. It really plays well as, as a few figures and it plays well as a few more figures and it plays well as a few more figures. We're never going to be a full scale mass battle game, like, like a 40k, right. Um, where you've got 40 miniatures on a side. That's, <laughs> that, that's not what we're setting out to make. Um, yeah, but yeah, well, no, no one set out to do that, uh, yeah. but that's where you end up. <laughs> if you're not very careful and you don't, you don't kind of check yourself as you go along, you, you'll you'll lean that way, right? So, um, well, it's, it's, the, this is the thing. It's not a question of what you do. Once once you write a set of rules and you you release it out into the universe, it's a question of what they do. And, and if they take it up and decide that the right scale for it is going to be like fifty a side, then 
it'll be 50 a side. But it's designed to work from anywhere from a handful and going up on up because uh, well, I think any scalable game needs that. Where sure. it can work with a, a handful of figures or it can scale up and uh, handle a lot more. But the idea, yeah, is, is keep the numbers down, keep the game very fast, is one thing we're particularly focused on. You know, somewhere in the like 30, 40 minutes to have a decent sized game yeah. of it. Yeah, so you can play a couple games with your friends in an evening. Absolutely. Big turnover, big turnaround. Yeah, kind of that, yeah that comes down to that, that, that kinetic action bit, which is. The, it's a shorthand for fast-moving game. It's an activation system. And the reason for that is the way we play games, the games we enjoy playing, aren't a lot of wait-react, wait-react, okay, I'll do all my turn, mm-hmm. you do all your turn. It, the games we actually enjoy playing are more activation-based games. And and it lets me do something every couple minutes. And I don't... I don't get out of the, I don't get out of the flow of the game. I, I kind of just keep going and yeah. keep capturing that feel and and the the thematic root underneath everything is some fairly clean, not grim, dark science fiction with a good touch of um, late eighties and nineties anime influences. Kind of the golden age of animation and manga coming out of Japan into more broad stream Western audiences and so that kind of Macross era. Uh, Macross and later, right? So okay. you you kind of get Macross. You kind of look at that that period as if you're. I, I'm not a scholar. I do not pretend to be one. Um, really, mid '80s into late late '80s, and then right. then your uh, your Akira's, your Apple Seeds, your mm-hmm. um, uh, Ghost in the Shell. As you get into the early and mid '90s, your uh, sure. Pot Labors, where they have existed before, but they are coming into the West and they're not all fan subtitles. And large numbers of people are actually getting to experience them for the first time. And it's, it's kind of magical. Yeah. And, you know, it's just that that feeling. Um, and then when we talk about big armor suits, we're basically trying to make sure that we're not we're not making a mech game. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I love a giant stompy robot. Um, I think we all love that copy robots, but we are making basically people in suits, uh, running around doing things. And that, that scale is very much, you're going to have, you know, 32 mil to I heroic scale support figures scaled with much larger, um, degrees of dudes in suits or people in suits, however you want to look at it. And that kind of mix of everything is is what we come back to so we, we make a new zeo a new big power armor suit do we make it with big clunky rules no we make it with something that you're going to have multiple actions and you're going to do a bunch of things it's it, it's just kind of something to test ourselves by yeah that's very cool all right so um i think i'm gonna pose this next question for gav since uh, gav you're kind of taking the the lead on narrative and setting what is the world of zeo genesis like um, yeah, so, so basically follow up from what uh, Danny was saying there. Yes, we, so it's, it is that uh, uh, an ultra tech future. Um, we're, we're set thousands of years in the future. Um, Earth is actually a long distant forgotten memory, really. Empires have risen and falling. It's a very space opera uh, mm-hmm. kind of setting. Uh, spread across a hundred star systems, um, but we're going to actually start out by focusing really on a, on 
one star system, what we call a heliosphere, one heliosphere, and the, and the story that's unfolding there. Um, and through that, then we'll introduce elements of the setting uh, through the narrative, through the, the sort of like the games and the scenarios we create there, and then and then things will broaden out. So what we're not trying to do is dump an entire um, the entire setting uh, on people at once. There's not going to be a hundred pages of background to to read through and uh-huh. kind of absorb before you understand what's going on. It, it's very much no. This is a situation. This is what's going on. These are the people that are involved. This is what's kicking off, <laughs> um, and go, go. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, very aware that I think the background for a, for a game should go to a certain point, and then people's games take over. So you don't have to, you know, it's all about setting up why they're in, why there's a conflict, why these forces are amassing, why people were shooting lasers at each other. Um, you know, and there's a little bit of like, you know, well, how are they running around in big armor suits? We've got this. Um, sure. You know, we've got this fudge that we I invented called Z space, Zo space, which is allows an interface of like mind and machine and stuff. But it's all you know, essentially just the uh, the fig leaf for you know, it's science fantasy, not science fiction. At the end sure. Of the day. Um, and uh, the setting we have, as Danny said, there, it's not grim dark. It's not you know, cut through. Everybody's trying to kill everybody else and wipe them off the face of the, the universe or anything. Um, we actually just have two sort of uh, two dissonant philosophies that are essentially battling to control humanity's future. So do they go one way or another? Uh, and one is one is about everything being the same and everyone unified under one set of laws and things. And essentially the other one I sort of describe as the you're not boss of me faction, uh, which are obviously mutually, you know, you can't have both of them. You're either... Sure. Everyone's either... You know, sort of freewheeling and doing their own thing, or they're sort of unified. So, and and I, I liken it a bit to you know capitalism and communism or something. You know, these two systems just can't work together. They're not necessarily like blowing each other to bits all the time. The the majority of citizens don't necessarily care which one they're under as long as they're getting food, all that kind of stuff. But there is this very ongoing subtle leaves of power, some of which comes down to physical conflict with. Robe, you know, armored suits fighting each other, but it's actually—it's not like annihilating entire planets and supermay star systems. It's much more you know, clandestine, covert special ops, and sort of small cells of troops uh, and well, zero forms and their support troops and things trying to get in, and then also just like the random ragtag of like mercenaries and smugglers and pirates and all that kind of stuff as well. So, so we're starting off with this very contained event basically that kicks things off. Um, essentially, you can summarise it as one of our star systems is missing, um, okay. uh, and, and both sides sort of blaming each other. And so uh-huh. this lukewarm war is starting to heat up in one particular place, uh, a, a, a heliosphere called Astropelago, and, and things are kicking off and escalating and stuff. So that and that's where we essentially that's where we introduce the play. We drop them in there and go right, okay, this is what's happening. You're start you're starting to fight these escalating battles. Uh, and then and it will grow from there basically, and we'll see how a the story progresses. But secondly, um, you'll start to see other elements of the universe uh, being incorporated into the setting and into the game. Very cool. So, does do both factions use the same tech, or do they have sort of you know their own looks and aesthetics and and machines and so forth? Um, so yeah, we've, both factions. <clears throat> In terms of the fighting troops, we have guard corps who are sort of like the more straight-laced, everyone do what we say types, and we have Pact, 
who are the uh, the militant wings, the militant agents of an organisation called the People's Galactic. Um, and so essentially, you know, they all have access to very high technologies and things like that. But yes, one is much more militaristic, unified, um, uh, and slightly more um, a sort of like traditionally armoured um, and, and soldier-like, and the others are, are much more uh, eclectic and kind of out there technologies, I suppose. Um, and, and we sort of, you know, some of the weapon types are, you know, are um, streamlined to one faction or the other and things like that. So they've each got a distinct character of fighting. Um, uh-huh. But but the base technology, you know, like access to zero forms and things like that, that's that's unified across the entire universe. Um, essentially, we are, um, the setting is kind of like, is very much on the edge of the, the sort of like the civilized space that we're dealing with. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily, the, it's, it's, it's high tech, but it's not the most civilized areas. So it's not, we don't have like planets teeming with billions of people and things like that. It's, we're exploring a sort of frontier space. So some of the technology is a little bit rough and ready, particularly on the pack. Yeah. But also on the guard core side, again, the, the, a lot of them are the guys who are on the distant patrols or have been like posted out to, to, um, to, to settings that, you know, it's like, well, you know, we'll see you again in about 10 years kind of stuff. So, sure. uh, you know, it, it's not, it's not, <laughs> I say, yeah, you're not getting massive armies and things kicking off. Uh, from the outset that's not the idea at all Mm -hmm. very cool so uh i'm gonna pitch this one towards uh andy um what is the basic gameplay like uh you know how are you how are you what are your goals as a designer for for creating this sort of um kinetic action that you guys talk about um well one of the things is danny touched on before is is uh, it's got an integrated turn sequence basically when it's my turn i nominate a model I activate it, uh, take actions with it, and then it's your turn. You won't nominate a model, you take actions with it. So it's, it's literally model by model basis. When you get to activate a model, it, it'll generally get a number of actions strung together. Uh, three actions as a rule, like two moves and a shoot is the most common mm-hmm. one. So you get quite a lot done. Uh, the other thing is, like, everything has activation points. Little guys will have one. Uh, zero forms generally have two. If you have activation points ready, I mean, one, you can be chosen to be activated on the turn, but also uh, on the opponent's turn, you can react if they attack you, move too close, that kind of thing. So that there's a bit of a, a tension there overall about whether you try and hang on to your activation points to the last possible moment or whether you use them to react to the opponent's moves. Uh, and the scenarios are set up to be quite tight in terms of there's a number of usually a number of victory point locations a number of objectives that you're going after and you won't be playing forever you know your your morale right. factor uh your force cohesion starts to erode quite quickly so mm-hmm. you need to be johnny on the spot and make some sharp decisions uh, and kind of go for it to a large extent i say the idea is these are clumpy slow mechanized uh, dreadnought type things these are far more the kind of things that run around and produce sparks off their feet as they skid round corners. Yeah, sure. Um, um, so to that end as well, there's a lot of sort of flexibility in the movement rules, like moving up and down, jumping up onto buildings, jumping down off buildings and things like that too. It, it sounds like the game sort of rewards bold uh, bold decisions and, uh, and choices. Generally, yeah. You, you are against the clock to a large extent and it, it, it plays to that. That being said, I mean, it's getting the balance between your actual zero forms, the big guys, and the supports, which are the drones and the little fellas, you know, the engineers, the drone yeah. operators, the snipers, that kind of thing. 
which can be key figures actually in helping out uh, forms get the job done or taking objectives while people's backs are turned, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So it's it's kind of like utilizing your your, your force as a uh, a good little, little special ops team, really. People doing what they do best and doing very cool. what the opposition are up to at the same time. So um, it's very scenario based, then. Uh, yeah, the, the the one of the other features there's a number of scenarios um, that are generally mirror matches rather than asymmetric scenarios. So you know you'll be up both be on either side of the the battlefield, there'll be a number of objective points to take on the battlefield. But uh, that said, there are a few attack defense ones and escorts and things like that as well. But yeah. I say they always revolve around this idea that you, you come in with a certain amount of force cohesion, which is dependent on the models you picked for your force. And uh, even as Clauschwitz likes to say, there's this concept of friction. Just getting shot at and fighting will tend to erode your force cohesion. Every objective that you don't own uh, by the time you have to refresh your activation points, will cost you force cohesion and so on. So it's uh, uh-huh. a high-pressure environment. Is the yeah, idea. It sounds like it. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of push this question towards uh, Danny. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, that you've got your, your different scaled miniatures and stuff. What, what is the size of your average um, Zeo, or Zeo Morph, I think I should say? Yeah, so with the with the Zeos, they're... they're Broadly three sizes. Um, the more tactical Zeos, the smallest of them are typically going to be um, uh, 60 mil base. Uh, they're generally going to be, if we have a common vernacular, call it a call it a dreadnought size. Um, and the there are different names for each group and other other things as they come out. But the the next step up in size are largely going to be on an 80 mil base, and they're going to tend to be in the 85, 90 mil tall range. Mm-hmm. And then um, we're still solving for the largest ones. Um, okay. Of how to actually base these things uh, so that they're not uh, terrifying to other human beings. So it, it's interesting. Uh, as we go up, we're actually going to keep the same upper bound of height, but probably go uh, multi-limb or more length and depth. So whether that's uh, you know a 200 mil base or whatever, working on it, we'll solve it. it it's always sure. the balance of what is something that, sure, you can make a really big miniature. Would you ever actually play with it if it you right. can't? Maneuver it somewhere. That, that, that's the upper limit of the moving it around the tabletop yeah. uh, in a meaningful fashion. When, when it clashes with that, everything's quite dynamic and moving fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and th- those are the those are the kind of stuff we talk about all the time when we're making the game. Is literally, oh yeah, we could, but we've also played miniature games for our entire adult life, so we probably shouldn't make that choice because we wouldn't we wouldn't appreciate it if someone said, uh, you know, oh this is twice as big as any other figure you have. Well, there's probably a reason for that, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, just just to clarify for my own, my own thinking, um, in the game, how big would say if you had, if you had a single model with just an average human being, what size base would he be on? Uh, we're generally using a thirty mil base, and thirty and, mils for that. Okay. Yeah. So the the average human scale figure should be our our heroic friend about thirty two mils to the to the eye line mm-hmm. um, on a heroic scale. Um, it, it, I know we all love to use precise scales and miniatures. I personally love 
the excuse of heroic scale, which is, wow, yeah. that's just kind of a big miniature. You're like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of witchcraft and voodoo involved in scaling for sure. Oh, oh. God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all the fun of the pair of like, and now hold it at arm's length. Now put it on the table and move three feet away from it. Does yeah. it still look good? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. 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 I'll, I'll, because, because we all work remotely from each other. Andy and Gav are in the UK. Our, our uh, lead concept artist Dan Morrison is in the UK. Um, I'm here. We have sculptors kind of all over the place. There are there's a lot of did you mean this photos in our in our internal work channels, and it's like nope. I took this picture exactly this way. You have the same print I have. Zoom out. Look at it exactly this way. That's why that's mm -hmm. a problem. And it's it's great fun because we're getting ready to do everything in injection plastic. So what the scale is is what the scale is. There's not a lot of, of fudging there. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, you, you're committed at that point, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another question. I'm going to kick this kind of back to you, Andy, again. Um, what size table does this, this game play on? Uh, I've done primary testing on a 3x3. Three three. Okay. Uh, not at all related to that. That's the size of the table I have in my house. But I figure that applies to everyone. So sure. if you've got at least three by three, you can play it. And once again, if it will work on three by three, you know, it will scale up from there. Right. It'll just give you a bit more elbow room, uh, particularly if you're using larger forces, because that baseline that that's what I've been using for the the, the sort of like what, what we see as a starter set. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a medium Zeo on one side against two tactical ones on the opposing side. And about half a dozen support dudes on each side as well. Okay. So about how many miniatures do you see per side? Um, like I say, that's a starter set amount. Um, yeah. I'd expect to go up a little bit from there, but not a vast amount. Sure. Yeah, uh, for for a, a sort of like a decentish game, so you know, add another Zeo form or two on each side. Uh, okay. We've really five. loosely been using the 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 idea of the the Zeo unit, which is a Zeo hmm. plus the Zeo supports, right? So mm -hmm. a Zeo unit could be a medium, it could be two tacticals, it could be some number of Zeo, typically one, uh, with you know. Two, three, four, five supports, depending on how big the Zio is, how big the game is scaled for, uh, mm -hmm. and and the the shorthand we've we've talked about a lot when we've done demos this year um, at conventions like a UK Games Expo or, or Adepticon is that three by three table is a pretty constant at one Zio unit to one Zio unit, like the starter set Andy's talking about, and the two Zio units per side. You know, you're creeping up to ten figures aside. It'll be a it'll be a tight, fast. You're quickly engaged on a three by three table. Yeah, you go up to three zero units on a side. You're probably going to creep up to a four by four table. But because it works at the three by three size, um, it still feels like the same game. And that's mm -hmm. when we, we go back to the 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 you know somewhat funny tagline of scalable skirmish. That's actually what we're trying to achieve. Is it feels like the same game. If you're into it and you want to play more and you want bigger forces, the game still works. <laughs> which sure. is yeah, which is a lovely turns, thing. Which I mean, works. Does it mean it, it, it scales pretty directly up with the number of forces you've got? So this is why I've been saying, I, to a certain extent, that the players will decide what what their happy point is, right? Uh, for how much forces they want to use. You know, obviously, the more forces you use, the longer games are going to take. But hey, 
that, that that's a personal decision point thing. Yeah. And uh, we, we'll we'll find out what that is and work around that. Basically, the tournament crowd will be the ones that decide. <laughs> Hundred points for a game, or it's one hundred and fifty points for a game. One one of the things we've been focused on um, uh, is there's very little bookkeeping. So even though you've got these quite big models and things like that, there's uh, there's very little you need to keep track of. So there's detail in all the right places and lots of kind of narrative in some places, but in terms of actually record keeping and, and like keeping track of your cohesion and, and your activations and stuff, there's very little that you, you know, you can probably tell everything that's going on just by looking at the tabletop is the idea. Yeah, that's you, been the You're not having like, lots of notes and like hit locations and any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's very, it's fast play. So, you know, even if you are playing with say four or five ZOs and quite a few supports, uh, you know, it will take you longer, and there's lots more activations to do and things like that. But it's you know, if people if they can keep all that stuff in their head of what they want to do, then then they'll be able to do it. There's not going to you know, it doesn't. It's not going to like uh, it's not like exponentially going to generate even more paperwork and even more tracking and stuff. Um, Presumably, there's no Scantron test forms for this game. <laughs> I don't even know what one of those is. Oh, it's the <laughs> uh, at least here in the states, the uh, the standardized test you fill in little dots, very much like a certain uh, mech game of old that still seems to be on. Oh, right, yes, yeah, yeah. No, but, uh, no, we, we've actually worked quite hard on on making sure that anything you need to track gets tracked on the model itself. Uh, so, like the number of uh, hits, number of defenses it's got left, or the number of activation points it's got left, whether it's uh, you know being whether it's on fire or not at the moment is all tracked on the models themselves rather than on unit data cards or anything like that off to the side. So, when you, when you say on the model stuff, do you mean like via tokens on the tabletop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we generally use a dice um, on the the ZO4 models to track its number of remaining defenses. We've, we've spent, yeah, we've really spent I'm a lot of time. On the engineering side on that, but, yeah. We really spent a lot of time this year, kind of getting the first play test out the door, and and getting we have a design that that we like. We're actually giving it to people to play, getting some feedback, kind of trying to make it more human readable right off the bat, and always like Andy's talking about trying to to, to simplify it. Um, my my personal pet peeve is I don't enjoy um simulation games that require bookkeeping that require a lot of extra things nearby uh and and we've got it basically down to the we use a a die d6 we're making uh some base options that have you know nice little holder for them that kind of thing um to keep track of basically showing how many um defenses how many hits model still has left we have activation tokens and we basically have one um call it a status ailment token but it's basically it represents all the states of hey you are you are it you're impinged on in some way you are impaired in some way uh-huh. and it has the same meaning across all the models and it doesn't matter how you got there that's 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 the beauty of andy taking those mechanics having them happen off the table and just showing the result, right? And result is, hey, you are both wounded and impaired and you have an activation left and and that's all I need to know. And I don't need a matrix, right? I I, I grew up playing Starfleet Battles. I had multiple three-ring binders of multiple sheets of multiple ships trying to fight an eight-ship battle. I'm a nerd. I went through all that. 
<laughs> we have computers now. We don't have yeah. to do that anymore. They do that for us. So those experiences are maybe better, maybe out of the medium that we're in. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, actually, I got a question for you, Gabe. We've talked a little bit about what the, the gameplay is like. Um, we talked about the size of the table and the scenarios. What what are the environments that the game takes place in like? You know, you talked about this frontier world. Is it in an urban environment? Is it in a forest? What, what kind of places are we fighting over? That's a really good question, um, <laughs> which we are still answering. Okay. Uh, so um, the general, so so uh, the starters uh, revolves around uh, an in, uh, an installation known as known as Saber Ridge, which is out in the, and essentially it's a, uh, uh, well, it's it's supposedly like a, a stellar observatory type thing, but it's also supposedly like a black ops site, blah blah blah, all this other stuff associated. So, and lots of people are very interested, suddenly become very interested in it because it's supposedly. Um, intercepted a very important transmission um, uh-huh. so uh so so saber ridge itself um uh is the, you know it, it's situated just like on a, on a distant dwarf planet on the edge of the, the star system but throughout the rest of that star system are asteroids and gas giants and and all that kind of stuff but we, yes it's so what we're, we're kind of looking for slightly urban industrial tech i suppose would be one way of of summarizing it so it's not like it's not necessarily like skyscraper hab buildings and blocks. It's more like generators and atmosphere processors. It's you know it's uh, uh, and again you know we don't have like temples dotted with skulls and things. Um, it's, it is kind of functional tech, uh, and and the rules themselves um, very much scenery and stuff that you move around. We don't have people going in and out of buildings and stuff like that. They they are essentially line of sight blockers and things to jump off of with your giant sword and cut another zero four in half. Um, so, so the environments we're investigating, uh, and, and sort of like the battles that we talk about in the background, yeah, very much sort of like away from population centres and prying eyes, um, uh, and we've been working with uh, sort of like um, our designers to to create uh, sort of set a, a terrain set that um, is more sort of modular in fashion, I suppose. Uh, so we can create lots of interesting actual terrain pieces from uh, a set number of different components and things. But one of the things that we've not talked about yet is uh, the idea of structures. So structures is uh, another component to your force. So as well as your zero forms and their support models, actually your force can include structures, which are things like uh, refueling points or shield generators or um, cryogenic um, sort of storage and things like that. Uh-huh. Uh, we operate a couple of ways. There are essentially extra models in your force that you place on objectives. So if you have an objective in your deployment zone, actually you can turn one of them, oh, sorry, you, and you've got a structure, um, you can place the structure at the start of the game on that objective uh, and, and turn it into that particular thing. You can also pay to make them deployable, which means that if you seize an objective during the course of the game, you can use your activations to bring down a structure from orbit, essentially, or from you know, sort of like high-flying aircraft or whatever. So essentially, uh-huh. it's kind of a slightly RTS-type feel of like being able to drop these things onto the tabletop mid-game. So again, oh, that's, that's, cool. part of, that's part of that kinetic action of the tabletop changing. Um, but of course, they can be used by both sides if you don't get there first. Sure. And like that. And those structures, again, so even, you know, we're realistic enough to that many of our players will have existing scenery collections, right? Um, which will represent you know all kinds of things, but many of them may resemble Gothic ruins. Um, 
but um, I imagine why. Yeah, but, but actually, by placing structures on the tabletop, any tabletop gets turned into a zeogenesis table because you have the aesthetic of you know uh, of those um, sort of like mini buildings and uh, you know radar issues and, and the sort of like the, the style that we're going for amongst whatever your scenery collection is at the moment. So cool. again, as well as the miniatures fighting over it, you have the structures that then sort of like make it part of our universe. Um, regardless yeah. of what plus they're part of your was. force as well you and know, they're part of your force yeah at the army list stage so yeah like, all right i'm gonna have some things so the nice really little little point yeah if you've got two or three points left over as well you i mean they'll be part of your tactics but also it's like then you know they're, they're nowhere near as expensive as even as a, a normal support model so it's like well right. you know you can just fill in the little corners here and there with yeah yeah to make them you know and if you don't deploy them because you didn't get a chance it's not it's not too big a yeah. deal but that's quite but actually you know bringing one down at the right time um yeah they can uh, be know, useful can make, yeah yeah they can definitely be useful but, but they're, they're not completely devastating although we do need to find try out the defense turrets before we that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's really cool i can't give too many games i've heard of anything like that i'm really i'm pretty excited about that well, the, um, the, the idea is is in a lot of ways they're they're minor overall depending on how defense turrets come out um they're, they're minor dials on basic gameplay, right? Yeah. And that idea of adding, take a light, fast game, put some tactical choice in there, but don't dump a thousand tactical choices, dump the same, you know, if you have 20 choices and you have a couple of ways to achieve each of them, awesome. You, you can wrap your brain around that. That 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 is actually maybe enjoyable. That is our goal sure. to actually make a game people actually play, right? And I, I, I sound kind of like I'm, I'm quippy when I'm saying that, but I'm not. I mean, that actually is our goal, is to make a game that we would both enjoy ourselves to play and other people would play. And, and the word play is the biggest thing. You should want to play again. You should be like, oh, you know, maybe if I go all Zio and don't bring any support, maybe that's a good idea. Hint, mm -hmm. it's probably not a good idea. But um, maybe I mix around not just terrain placement, but I mix around the the structures. And my plan is I want to go over there and do what that structure gives me the benefit for. Or, hey, it's a beautiful decoy. The other guy wants it so badly, he goes after it, and I go take two. Right. That, that, that actual ability to make a choice in gameplay without having to flowchart a thousand possible if-thens. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's it's easy, and it takes a game or two, and you grasp it, and you go, "I would actually like to try that." And it, and it feels good in the games we play. It actually feels good, which is a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. So I was go thinking. Ahead, please go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say actually, it's probably worth Andy talking a little bit because we've the terrain system actually is also something we've incorporated into the basic gameplay. Yeah. No. Good point, Garda. Doing it for so long and uh, taking it for granted. One of the other things that we we're quite keen to do was, was develop a game that you know you can you can show up at your local game store or what have you with somebody you don't necessarily know and you can just get to playing. Uh, and part of that was terrain setup and the idea. I've seen this done in a few other miniatures games in the past, where, where you almost have like a competitive game, a terrain setup, where setting up the terrain follows rules. You both have a number of points to spend and um, you, you allocate out from the terrain you have available, because that's always the challenge with terrain rules, is you've got no idea, broadly speaking, what people are going to have available. But 
it establishes a set of rules for placing terrain, you know, categorizes different terrain pieces, tells you how much you can place and in what order and things like that. And it's quite nice because you can develop a table sort of like somewhat in competition with each other. Oh, you know, I want more open lines of sight or I want closer terrain and things like that. Or I really want to cover up where those objectives are going to be early on. Um, so you, your battle starts before you put a single model on the table. Yeah. Really, with, with actually choosing your battlefield. Uh, which has worked pretty good, and uh, that that's a nice little addition to the game in itself. That's really cool. Um, you know, I, I guess I think that that evolving battlefield is just a really um, interesting and exciting part of the gameplay. I can't wait to see if that that kind of actually pans out in in practice. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we're still we've I've got rules in there for like destroying uh, buildings and terrain and crunching things in general. How much of that? you actually, well, players actually want to get engaged with during a game is a different question, because it, sure. it can be a bit awkward in practical terms to go change the terrain pieces on the tabletop. Um, it's, some will like it, some will not, so it's, it's not a compulsory part of the game right now, but that's one I've got my antennae out about yeah. to see how people pick up on it. No, it's pretty engaging. Do, do you see it as, is it a terrain-heavy game? Do you need five pieces yes. of terrain? Do you need 20? How many would you say? Mm, quite, for... quite dense. I mean, yeah. uh, me and Gav playing in particular, he'd, he'd found some particularly nice uh, card terrain buildings. And yeah. uh, quite dense overall. You know, we're looking yeah, we... at something every six inches or so. Let's put it okay. that way. Yeah. We've quite been big. using um, the Acid House um, sci-fi scenery. Um, so oh, Yeah, that's what's cool. Yeah, they, they, they do a great job. They have a great design. And um, the out-of-the-box um, heights worked really well with um, our existing scale of, of Zeos. And they fall into similar scaling groups where there are smaller pieces, medium pieces, and bigger pieces that, with a little bit of stacking, um, line up uh, really well with our, our target dimensions. So we've been using those as a lot, and by having that as an option in at least some of it in the basic set, um, where it's what we're working towards. Um, you know, we're going to give you enough to play a good three by three table, but we're also mm -hmm. working on a bunch of more more aesthetic, more curved, more in universe um, shapes of. All kinds of bits. We have about thirty uh, sculpts of scenery, and oh wow! And it's it it doesn't feel right to ask people, "Hey, buy this game and go buy two hundred dollars of scenery to play this game." That that seems like an odd question, and maybe not the best thing to ask people to do. Sure. So we're we're also working on a plan to basically um, set up a nice STL pipeline for people um, to oh, be great. to to be able to have a table that looks uniquely Zeogenesis without going all the way down the pipe and saying, Oh, I would love a giant $200 play set of terrain. Um, a lot of, a lot of what we're working on uh, that we don't talk about a ton is how do we get the STL aesthetic, not the aesthetic, pardon me. I, I am a little bit ill. As you can probably tell from my voice, no worries. using the wrong word. How do we get the STL mechanism into the pipeline of everything we put out. Um, so not everything is going to be available as an STL. We're going to make 90% of everything we make an injection, hard injection plastic. Um, but for things like scenery that make the table look amazing, how can we, without adding a huge cost to people, make a pipeline where, hey, you've got, mm -hmm. the, you've got the local store who, who will print anything. Um, there's a great store down the road for me who 
their tables are amazing because yeah. they, they they got a, a low zero dollar license to produce uh, STLs from a variety of vendors, and they produce a couple tables worth for every every game that's played in the store. And that's awesome. Looks amazing. So we should probably let those people who create those high end, um, you know, fun play experiences. We should probably figure out a way to let them do that with our stuff. And that's why we're we're doing all the sculpting testing on the scenery side. Isn't so that we can put out tons of plastic of scenery. It's so that we can basically say we think your table should look like this. Yeah. And here's a way to go do that. <laughs> No, I think that's, that's really exciting to me because, you know, one of one of my new rules for wargaming is that I, I, I am I am not getting into new games that I'm not willing to get a table of terrain for. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's been it's healthy for me. Um, but, you know, part of it is because, you know, I, I play largely at home or with my clubs in my my private club space. Um, so, you know, it's it's you can only play so many games and I want my games to look good and I want my games to look thematic. Um, so I think it's really cool that you're providing this sort of easy in to get the terrain going, to give it that, that thematic look. I'm like, that's, that's, that's really pretty cool. Of you guys. I, I think that, I think you're hitting on something that is, we're, we're probably, we're, we're probably all not dissimilar ages. We've, we've, we've played games for a long time and we like what we like and we want to share it with other people but we want our experience to be a good experience. And for the person who gets a box in a store and pops it open and puts together some models and plays it with their friends and they're happy, A plus, we have got someone playing a miniature game. That is awesome. Yeah. For the person who is either 100% in or 100% out and they've played games for 5, 10, 20 years, more, um, we tend to over-index a little bit and we want the table that looks amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so we're, we try to be aware of and respectful of how people actually play games, right? I, I have a personal bias to helping uh, retail stores that carry games. Love me, a comic and game store. Sure. Um, and being able to help them actually put on games is an awesome thing. Being able to have it available at their stores is an awesome thing. All, all of these are things that we know from from just being around forever and actually actually want people to one play the game and two have a good time yeah the uh, the, S the stl things are interesting as well from design because there's all sorts of other things that we've touched on as well like alternate weapon designs and component parts for the uh, the zero forms like variant pieces uh, and different structures as well uh which are all possibilities that you might be able to produce that way which you wouldn't do an injection molded plastic, but the, the possibility is always there of getting them out in, into the world. And of course, people do their own thing as well. So we're, we're trying to design very much with that sort of things in mind too. Oh, very cool. I'm actually, I want to talk about this. So you guys are doing injection molded plastic, which is a pretty big deal for an independent manufacturer. Not a lot of people are out there doing it. Um, tell me about that. I think you're doing it in the US too, aren't you? Uh, yep, we are basically building uh, all of our capacity. I, I live in North Carolina, and um, we're building all of our capacity here in North Carolina. We've got uh, a couple of uh, five-axis CNC machines, which is just a fancy way of saying a fancy CNC machine, that um, we're making our mold inserts, and we've got a couple of injection molding machines that we are um, doing our own injections on. And it is a brave new world of... of making sure we're actually good at everything, but man, it's worth it. it it's nice to actually physically make things. I've, I've worked in digital gaming for 15 years 
and it is awesome to actually physically produce a thing again. No, I believe it. You gotta, you gotta own the means of production, right? It's super cool. Exactly. I, I, I use the joke all the time. Own the means of production, please. Yeah. Please own the means. <laughs> For sure. And, um, and it gives us, it's a learning curve. It, yeah. Making us go slower than I would like, but the end result will be better. So, you know, it, there, it's, a, it's a golden age for the ability to make a, a game and get it in front of people. And it's a golden age for an, a, the ability to actually physically produce miniatures. There are multiple methods of making miniatures now from the bad old days of spin casting. And they are all equally good and bad in different ways, but they exist and it's cool. And if you want to do it, you can actually go do it, which is much harder than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I actually, I got my start in the industry um, as a spin caster. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, you watch your mouth, Danny. We, some of we, it we started actually, out there. <laughs> I still have some 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 white metal scars. As I say, got <laughs> scars to prove it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we actually we actually have uh, an old style. Um, uh, I can't remember the manufacturer name. Spincaster. It's been reconditioned in the warehouse. Um, it's. I basically we were trying to prove about three years ago. We we're trying to prove that there was a method of spinning resin, and hint: there's not a great method of spinning resin, but. We went through the time because was working on something else at that point to, to take the time to get one and go through the, go through the effort of, will this work? And it was awesome. A terrible mess. I, I regret the amount of resin that went flying everywhere and said, okay, cool. That literally won't work. We should just, <laughs> if we're going to do, if we're going to produce these, we should just commit to the method we're going to use, which is injection. And there's a, you know, there's a lovely middle ground with the SiaCast machines. They do a great job. They are a boon to people making miniature games. High five. You know, we have one. High five. We will give everyone who uses them and makes games with them. Big thumbs up. But the thing we ultimately want to make, the thing that ultimately kind of goes together a little easier for me is regular hard plastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you can't beat it as a hobbyist, too. Uh, but you were talking about things being a bit of a slow process, but, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up this episode, I was curious, can you talk a little bit about the timelines? When, when might we start seeing Zeogenesis out in the world? So seeing it out is, let's go talk small scale to large scale. Small scale, um, Gav and I should be out at Nova uh, next week. The Nova Open in Northern Virginia, right? There you go. That's the one. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, basically doing demos, signing up, playtest folks. And then the next bigger scale of that is we're actually always recruiting for playtesters. We're about to start um, public playtest two, which is the basics of the game, the advanced game, and then some of the sample scenery rules Andy was talking about and some of the sample uh, armulas. Coming up right after Nova, um, people can sign up at zeogenesis.com. There's a playtest button, send us your information, caveat. Um, we're using a fairly generic web tool. When you sign up, there's a high likelihood our response to you is going to go to your spam box. Okay. We're working to fix it, but it is a canned software problem. It's, I promise we have a security certificate. It's wonderful, but it is, uh, 
a canned software problem where the sender high likelihood is going to go to your spam mailbox. If you sign up, please check that. And that's going to run for a couple of months. Um, our original goal was to get out in Q4 this year. Um, very likely late into Q, late Q1 next year. Just we're comfortable with with the rules, with the production. It's it's all about cutting metal at this point. Sure. And that is the the basic set has uh, what would amount to I think twelve sprues right now. Each oh, wow. of the, each of the sprues being um, mastered, so digitally looking great. Actually getting them cut, actually having all the test injections, going to take the better part of the rest of the year. Uh, sure. But in the meantime, uh, the, after we do playtest two, um, we'll probably try to squeeze in uh, another version before the end of the year to keep people keep people more appraised and going. We we started mm-hmm. right around Adepticon with a light. Hey, here we are. We went to UK Games Expo. In the meantime. We actually lost a little bit of steam over the summer, mostly because we had a little bit of travel and a little bit of uh, just getting metal cut. And and that process is much more fluid now than it was then. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so nice to see personally, but it is time. Right on. So you're thinking we might see this product out for Adepticon 2024? It would almost be like that would be a cunning plan. Right on. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys there, hopefully. Um, but as we wrap up, I'm going to ask each of you the same question. And we'll go down the list, starting with Danny. Um, Danny, in a couple sentences, what are you most excited about about Zeogenesis? Uh, 100% honesty. Making a game that people actually play. That, yeah. That is the single biggest thing. I, it's something I've wanted to do. I've helped a lot of other people make a lot of other games. And... I look forward to making a game that people play. That I, can, that, I, that I can put that little stamp on that says, I'm in yeah. yeah, very cool. How about you, Andy? Uh, I'm looking forward to my first game based around D10s. <laughs> oh, you know, that's a, I'm actually glad you said, because I, I had meant to ask earlier what kind of dice this game uses, and for, totally D10s. forgot. d ten. <laughs> so that's the core yeah. die, huh? Very cool. Yeah, what? yeah, absolutely. Uh, we argued Danny down from a D20. No. <laughs> so, you compromise at D10s. Yeah. Now, so is it, is it a single D10 roll or what? No, no. It's it's group D10 rolls as a, a rule of thumb. It's generally dice pool with D10s. Dice pool. Which has been extra exciting in testing, I can assure you. Yeah. As, as we realize that uh, D10s are just all over the place, man. They're so unpredictable compared to D10s. <laughs> right on. And uh, finally, Gev, what is most exciting about Zeogenesis for you? Uh I'm really, I'm really looking forward to delivering a, like a setting and a narrative from scratch um, that's kind of purpose-built for the 21st century, actually, that we're going to use technology and different delivery methods and things to, to get that setting to people. Uh, and we're not just, we're not bound to like, you know, big 400-page books and things. I think that's going to yeah. be very exciting. Very cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you all so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, if you're listening please check the show notes and go to zeogenesis.com. But again, that's listed in the show notes where you can sign up for playtest access, see what's going on, uh, find Zeogenesis on Facebook and elsewhere. Um, check the links, stay prized. And if you're at Nova Open, definitely go check them out and uh, say hi for me. So guys, again, thank you so much. Can't wait to play the game. Cheers. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks for talking to us again today, So, 
Remember, fresh builders unite! The Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. Thank you.